City. It's your man, Big Pat, the voice of your Charlotte Hornets. And you're listening to the All Hornets Podcast Network, presented by Sports Illustrated. Welcome back to the All Hornets Draft Show. Joining me as he does every week to break down everything NBA draft, Chase Whitney. Chase, how you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm excited to get back in the saddle here. The draft is steadily approaching here in the next couple of weeks. We've only got, I mean, a couple more podcasts here before we're going to have to start locking things down and getting ready to find out how, to, how it goes on this, this fateful night for the Charlotte Hornets. Absolutely, we do. And for this episode, we're going to zoom a little bit out of it. We've done a lot. We've had a lot of guests on recently. We talked a lot about Scoot versus Brandon Miller. And what we want to do is have a little bit of an episode where like me and Chase normally spend like half an hour, either before or after the podcast, just like talking about the draft in general, talking about players, guys moving up, guys moving down, who's jumped out of film, stuff like that. And we just thought we, we want to bring some of that to the podcast. So this is going to be a little bit more zoomed out this week. We're going to be talking about some trade-up targets in the early 20s because Charlotte had the draft capital to move up in this, this draft. We're also going to then play Big Board Wars, which we did last year as well. And the way this works is you basically pick a guy from the uh, other person's big board who you have ranked either significantly low or significantly higher. And you kind of challenge them a little bit. Why have you got that guy, you know, 20 places above or below where I have him? We talk about where we kind of diverge in some of the prospects. So we're going to hit probably some different names that you maybe haven't heard yet on the draft show. Um, but first, Chase... I've seen some speculation from Hornets fans with the potential addition of Scoop that Charlotte should look at trading Lamella Ball or look at just having the conversation and considering it. What do you say to that idea or speculation? Definitely not. You need a lot of good players to compete in the NBA. The idea of you know getting lucky to get that number two overall pick and drafting Scoot or whoever else they end up picking would be to pair that player with Lamelo, So then you have two bona fide, like all-star caliber players, which pretty much every single competing NBA team has. Uh, it's just would make no sense at all right now for the Hornets to even consider moving off of like the, any of the top two or three, four talent, most talented players on the team. They need to be acquiring more players that could fit that type of bill rather than moving off of them to, you know, fill out other holes on the roster or something like that, which, you know, they have plenty of other assets to be able to fill out those holes beyond trading players that play major roles for them. So, I mean, as of now, Lamelo is the cornerstone of the franchise. So I don't, I don't think that that would even be something that would approach the, the minds of the Hornets front office right now. Yeah. I have very little to add. Um, if there are any challenges with fit down the line, deal with that then. That is not something that you need to... You do not need to outsmart yourself here by thinking like what you need to do. Just put put whoever you draft this year next to the mellow. Let's see how it goes. Like There is no prizes here for figuring out first. It's not like the mellow ball stock is an all-time high. It's not like we're expecting him to fall off an age cliff or anything like that. If anything, you should get better with a better, you know, a better luck injury year. So um, nothing to add, really. Uh, but I wanted to touch on that because I have seen it out there and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Okay, let's move on to our first main topic of the podcast. Um, 
Trade-up targets in the early 20s. Why are we focusing on early 20 trade-up targets? Well, generally reason being, within the draft, you can generally move up like five or six spots at a time, normally by like pairing a pick with another pick. So for example, this year, Charlotte have 27, 34, 39, 41. It's quite understandable to like, you can you pair that 27th pick with one of those second round picks. You can probably move up three to four to five to six spots, depending, even if you threw two second round picks in there, I don't know what team wants that. Um, but it's normally possible to move up in the draft. And with the roster issues that Charlotte have, with the excess of picks, it seems like it's a likely thing that Charlotte could consider for this draft. So Chase, do you think there are firstly any teams that you think would be interested in maybe moving back to 27 for Charlotte to pick up some extra assets? Anyone stand out to you? I think this is going to be a tough year to do that because like you and I have talked about, the quality and depth of this draft kind of does begin to trail off in that like late lottery, late first or mid first round area. But I think if you're trying to move up maybe back into the early 20s uh, and consolidate your picks a little bit, Brooklyn and Houston are the clear targets right now. Uh, I'm not sure if any of the teams between 23 and 26 are willing to like acquire more draft assets as opposed to just selecting in their current higher value slot. Uh, like Portland, Sacramento, Memphis, uh, and Indiana all have three picks plus each. And the Hornets ideally are consolidating picks in this current draft, like you said, like 34, 39, 41 with 27 to move up. So I don't think any of those teams are going to want to have five or six picks in this draft just to move down seven spots or something like that. Uh, but Brooklyn only has 51 outside of their back-to-back first-round picks, and Houston has zero seconds. So Charlotte's later picks could be enticing them to fill those two-way or maybe like a draft and stash players. Um, I'm not sure if the value matches up, especially to move up to 20 with Houston uh, without parting with the player also. But to me, those are the two teams to look at because 27 and 34 or 27 and 39 might get you to 22 or 21 maybe 20 if you throw a third pick or a like a low salary player in there for Houston. But there's definitely, there are some possibilities, but it might be more difficult than in years past, I think. Yeah. And interesting, I saw Rafael Barlow of NBA Big Board. He reported the other day in his kind of trade buzz column um, that he expects Houston to be active in trade talks around the draft and is unlikely to keep the 20th pick. Um, he quoted one of the agents saying, I can't see them keeping that pick. They're bringing in guys in that range for workouts, but they don't want to add another young kid to that roster. So that very much adds to that idea. Now you're probably thinking, well, why would they then want multiple picks in the second round if they don't want one pick in late 20s? Well, one of the reasons can be is those later picks can be used on two-way slots, right? You don't have to give that guaranteed roster spot that you have to give in the first round. So in some ways, maybe a, a, you know picking up Extra second round picks um, in future years and for this year might be something that Houston look to do. And remember, they're not as asset rich as people might think after trading James Harden because they still owe stuff from that Russell Westbrook deal as well. So interesting two teams that you, you outlined there. Um, I guess, what are some of the players who you think, if again, your GM hat on in Charlotte, <laughs> you're sitting there on the draft board, you see that someone slips to Houston at 20. And you know you can get up there for a, a reasonable price, let's call it. What? Give me a name of someone who you think you would maybe look to, you know, pair 27, 
34, uh, maybe a future second or a, I don't know, a kind of a deeper young player from uh, from the current roster, James Bucknight, Kai Jones. Who would you who would you go after for that sort of deal if they were sliding down the board? So my first thought goes right to CD Sissoko. Why not pair two Ignite guys together? Bring them both to Charlotte. They play different positions. If you just assume up... a draft scoot here. You've already penciled him in. You've already. I, I, this, 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 I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Try, I'm trying not to imagine any alternate scenarios here. Okay. I'm trying to bring the the positive energy into the world that we all need. But you pair those two ignite guys. CD can play on the wing. Obviously, drafting him even at 20 or 27 or wherever you move up to, much different level of you know pressure coming in. Nobody would expect him to even really be a part of the rotation, much less necessarily be with the Hornets at all in his first year he could just play a ton of minutes with Greensboro again already used to playing in the G League which would be fine um he's a very high upside player could be a a good like defender defender playmaker spot up shooter to pair with all the other playmakers in the rotation uh once this young core you know grows and becomes veterans uh yeah that that would be the first player that I I had written down here there there are a bunch of like I think high upside plays that could potentially be there but I'd be interested to hear who you have in mind for the well. Uh, the I think target. he is. I think he is a high upside play. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he's a safe pick by any means. I mean, he's basically an international prospect. He played one year with the Ignite. Um, it is he's the one who's got really interesting draft range. So ESPN has mopped City Sissoko in the second round now for the entire season. Like they've got him at forty in the most recent mock draft, going to Denver at forty, which is. Very different to a lot of other people. Uh, no ceilings, Rafael Barlow, uh, Sam Bassini, all have him as like a first round lock. A lot of people got him in the top 20. Um, so it's very interesting that like ESPN, who, Gavoni, you can give him all the crap that you want. I know he got the top three wrong last year, up to like half an hour before the draft. But he has generally over the years been the most accurate with this, especially with the international guys as well. It is interesting to have him going so late. But, I mean, I, I like City. I think the combination of – I mean, we've talked about him before in terms of he's uh, probably maybe a little bit better of a three-point shooter than the percentages might suggest uh, with some of his foot-in-line stats that you've shared. He is a fantastically thick-bodied, great athlete. He is a fantastic reader of the game in terms of connective playmaker, secondary playmaker. I really like – I don't know what his role is in the NBA – but I think that's okay when you're drafting someone who is so young, who is like had a growth spurt in the last couple of years, still growing into their body, like letting them play in Greensboro, getting that experience. I think that's absolutely fine. Um, but I do, I do just wonder if like there's a there's a world here that he could be available at 27. This this is the the risk that you play, right? Uh, but I, I mean, I would be a big fan of the pick. I think I've got City ranked pretty high on my board. I've got him 15 right now, so just outside the lottery. Uh, in fact, 17 that is sorry i got him 17 so just outside my lottery still um but i would be happy with city there but do you think he where do you think he goes what's your read on that situation see i feel like all of the rumors that we've been getting lately is like someone like Bilal Koulibaly is moving up so i yeah. feel like as this is usually the case not usually i don't want to say but i feel like every so often we get like one of these drafts where like high upside players like toolsy, you know, two-way playmaker types just move up around draft time. And I feel like CD, Bilal Koulibaly, even uh, Leonard Miller, another Ignite guy, could be like those types of players that rise 
throughout the pre-draft process because you've heard like connections for pretty much all three of those guys like well within the top 20 even though like you said some other outlets have cd as like a late second round pick or something like that but uh, yeah well, I, he I, he could i wouldn't be surprised if he is there at 27 but i to the same degree i wouldn't necessarily be surprised if like the thunder take him in the lottery or something like that either you know what i mean well let's assume he makes out the lottery because i've, I've not seen many places have him there but let's let's assume and let's let's go through the teams right um let's start at 15 atlanta hawks they to me feel like they're in a little bit of pressure to win they're looking probably for more of an impact player would you agree Absolutely, yeah. I would, I, that would be a pick that I think yeah. could definitely be traded this year. At the Utah Jazz at 16, the reports are that they're looking to add a point guard with a 16th pick, so that's probably one of Bufkin, Wallace, Hudshafino, so cities of Soka wouldn't fit that. Then you've got the Lakers, the Heat, and the Warriors, all one after another, who, again, like for me, are all teams who are like don't have that much cap flexibility going forward, don't have that many picks, probably need someone who they can can come in and make an impact. And again, I don't think City is a year one impact guy. I, that's just not what I see. So straight away, that gets you down to 20, uh, where you mentioned. Then I think it gets more interesting with maybe Brooklyn and, and Portland and Sacramento. But I do think he will be available in that 20 range. I do think Charlotte can get him if they want him. They haven't had him in for a workout yet. Doesn't mean that they won't before the draft. But it is definitely definitely a name to keep an eye on if they do bring him in. Okay, a guy who I'm looking for trade up. And I will say, so like for me, generally, I have my like tier of the draft from 12, where I have Grady Dink ranked, Grady Dick ranked, all the way down to 28 are all on tier for me. So I really don't have like a strong preference. In fact, my preference in this draft would probably be to not trade up because I just don't see a massive difference between 27 and the guy you're getting at 20. I, I really don't. Um, however... Going off again, off the latest ESPN mock, they had a couple of guys who are right at the top of this tier for me, who I think, like, in fact, I've got one of the guys who is actually in, two guys who are in the tier above, which are Kaysen Wallace and Keontae George, um, who you think, well, they're lottery guys. That's what I thought too. But Kaysen Wallace is currently mocked to go 17 to the Lakers. You then got, um, I've lost my point here. Uh, Kante George, who's the other one who I mentioned? Case Wallace. Um, where's Kante George gone? Oh, Kante George going 15 to the Hawks, which I don't understand at all, by the way. Uh, yeah, George, right. They just Dejounte keep, like, Murray, yeah. Trey Young. I mean, let's. There's enough. They already drafted and got rid of Sharif there. Cooper. Yeah, right. They drafted yeah. and got rid of Sharif Cooper after yeah. a year. Like, why are they just going to keep funneling in and out these guards that are also small yeah. scoring? Scoring. So. I think there's a world, and we see these like small combo scoring guards every single year. Like Tyrese Maxey was a guy who really dropped, didn't he? Like on draft night, everyone thought he was gonna kind of go in the lottery, and then he ended up being a, a little bit, a little bit higher up. Um, you know, we've learned that from Sharif Cooper, Kennedy Chandler, Jared Butler. These smaller guards drop in the draft, so those are two guys who are smaller guards who are thought of to be lottery talents. But if they somehow drop down to 20, they are of that tier of talent above for me because I've got them all, both like top 11 players. That that would be like really interesting guy to go grab. Grayson Wallace, I think, could play straight away, be that like backup guard, a much kind of probably like a higher ceiling Dennis Smith Jr. type defense facilitator. He also has some back issues, which aren't like completely cleared medically yet. I've not seen any report to say that they're not concerned. 
So there could be some additional injury issues there, which might be a reason that he drops. But those are a couple of names. So I'm, I'm guessing a higher on your board generally. I know one of them isn't actually, but, but I know Kaysen definitely is, who I would be very aggressively trying to move up if you felt like you could give up minor assets to get a another guard prospect in that range. I think another guy that you could think of in a similar light that would be higher up on most boards or consensus boards that would have to fall to get there. Maybe Derek Whitehead, especially with the recent news that yep. he had another foot surgery, wasn't able to participate in a pro day or obviously isn't going to be able to work out or anything like that. Uh, I mean, that's certainly not going to raise your stock uh, this time of year. So that would, I mean, that'd be another guy that I would be looking at too, like a, just a wing shooter that can, you know, come off of screens, catch and shoot if he can unearth any of that explosiveness and athleticism that you saw when he was at Montverde and like the inside the arc shot creation, then that would just be a huge bonus drafting a guy late in the first round, because with all this, the, how good of a shooter he is, he's probably going to be a pretty high level rotation player. If all that comes together and he can get back to what we saw when he was in high school. So that would be, another, that'd probably be another one of my, like, cause if you're, if you're drafting, I'm um, again, I'm, I'm assuming you're drafting a guard at number two. I think ideally you're, preparing them with like a wing or a forward uh with that later first round pick going forward and then I filling think so. out the roster with the rest I, of those picks. I am kind of torn because I think that like late first round pick is probably going to be quite far away from the rotation this year and depending yep. how they got on like maybe even next. Um my fear with Derek is it's just really hard to trade up for a guy who's got foot problems and injured and is probably going to like miss the summer and maybe spots the parts the start of the season um, to like sell your fan bases. Yeah, this is exciting. Now, like I know like the nerds can be like, well, he was actually a top prospect before the year and the injuries. And now maybe there's a reason here that he's, you know, his stats weren't as good this year because of this foot injury. I, I know there's that argument, but generally like he's like those type of players seem to be the guys type of guys that teams wait to drop to them and go, Oh, well, Let's take the swing rather than like aggressively moving up. If you're going to aggressively move up and put assets on the table, I feel like it needs to be someone who you have a, a confidence can maybe come in and like play more of a role earlier than just be like a guy to come into your team two or three years later. Because that's, that's why you draft guys early normally is because they have a higher upside and they can make a winning impact earlier in your team. Who else we got? You got anybody else on your, trade-up targets list that was really it i mean th those are the only two guys uh, this whole group of i don't know jordan hawkins Leonard miller bryce sensbard hudshafino Derek lively uh, ryan repair i mean i'm just if any of them are there at 27 i'm really happy but i'm not packaging a bunch of stuff to move up in this draft I just, there's not the talent drop off in my opinion um and kind of early on in the process i was of the idea of yeah package the picks move up as i've dived and learned more about the draft class i just think yeah i mean they always have access to more intel than i do but i i don't think there is a clear drop off in talent between that and i think you've you've heard a little bit of of that kind of like from once you get outside the lottery the range almost up to like 35 40 is, is pretty open in this draft yeah i definitely get that i think it's, it's definitely just i think more worth exploring for the hornets just because of how many picks they have like even if you're moving up four or five spots you're just giving giving yourself a wider draft pool getting rid of one of those spots that 
you're ultimately going to have to worry about in some sort of roster crunch or something like that. Because would you would you rather trade picks to move up five or six mm-hmm. spots and get? I know it depends who you get, but get a guy. Or would you rather like? Because what I think is probably quite likely is maybe trading some of these picks just to roll them into future years, right? You know, you trade him for a twenty-four or a twenty-five second-round pick, or a, I don't know if you want to trade the twenty-seventh pick again for another like late first a few years down the line. Uh, do you have a strong preference between those two? Um, I, I for the second-round picks, I think it would be fine to just roll those over. I think you either have to make that 27th pick or use it in some sort of move like this year necessarily. Uh, Cause I mean, unless you're just going to trade another, like, trade a future first round pick going down the line. Uh, maybe, maybe you, if you can roll it directly over to 2024, so then you can guarantee yourself that you have a pick next year because the Hornets as of now, uh, they would not because their pick is uh, going to, I think at San Antonio now, I, I believe after the, the pick that they traded to acquire Kai Jones in that trade up, I believe yeah. is going to be conveyed to San Antonio next year, unless the Hornets are within like the top 10 again in the, in the lottery. So, which is possible. Well, we, we can't, I don't, I don't yeah, know. It's, it's possible, I'm not ruling that out. I'm really, yeah, I wouldn't either, but I, in, I'm sure that they're hoping that that pick is going to convey to San Antonio next year. So I think the only yeah. way I would trade, and roll over 27 is if you're guaranteeing yourself a pick in the 2024 draft. But other than that, just make it acquire a player that maybe somebody you're just spending in Greensboro or like a draft and stash player or move up, you know, however many spots you can with it. If Do Denver still have their 24th first round pick? Uh, maybe just say to Denver, you know what, Denver, can we just, can you like give us something like, that isn't really real and we can just roll this thing on to next year. You know, you might finish worse than 27th, you know, in the rankings. Do they probably want a pick this year so that they could fill out some of that bench rotation, which despite them being in the finals could be better for us. I think at least a regular season. Um, I wouldn't wonder if that would be something that the team could even, could even entertain. I, it's unlikely these things that don't really happen like that, but it's a, an interesting thought exercise. They do have their own pick, so you they could just uh, be like, hey, well, why don't you guys just kick this can down the road? You take 27, we'll take what is most likely 27 again next year, and then we'll yeah. call it even. Yeah, but I, you do hear about the weakness of the 24 draft. Um, I don't know if our listeners have heard that, but the especially at the top, the draft class is known to be really weak. It is known to be a weaker draft in general. I think it is stronger after quite a few withdrawals. I know like we had six or seven of our top 60 went back to school at this deadline. So it is looking better now, but I do think, again, I've not looked into my, you know, draft prospects for next year. I'm still working my way through prospects for this season. Uh, but that is something that NBA teams will have a better handle on. It'll be interesting to see on draft night. If we see many, as many teams trading for 2024 picks. Cause like if, if no one really wants them, if this draft is as weak as they think it is in NBA teams, like no one's going to be wanting to take, Oh, Give us your second round pick this year and we'll take your 2024 pick next year. That maybe just be, we might see a lot of 25, 26 picks coming uh, in draft night trades, which will will be a a real temperature check for what NBA teams think of that class. Okay, let's move on to our other section, Big Board Wars. Um, As I explained at the start, we've gone through our two big boards, uh, both of our top 60s, and we have ranked the players who've got the biggest difference 
between our two. And I'm going to start with the team, with the player who has, who's basically the, the closest um, on our boards. Um, and then I'm going to go end with the one who we are the biggest disagreement on. So we took our top four prospects with the biggest change in rank. And the first player has a, a rank difference of 10. All right. And this is Keontae George, uh, as previously mentioned. I have Keontae George ranked 11th. You have Keontae George ranked 21st, which I would generally say I am probably a touch higher than consensus. You're probably a touch lower than consensus. I'd say his consensus range is 14 or 15. But we seem to have fallen on either side of this fence. So let's pose it to you first. What makes you uh, a you know, thinks Keontae George is not someone you even want to consider in the lottery. So I think that the lens that I kind of look at through, look at it through this year is I think that him and Nick Smith are very similar prospects. Not that they're going to bring career. up this argument. See, this is what, this is what I'm thinking about it. And through, through this lens, not that their NBA career is going to like pan out the same way or something like that, but I think right now they're very similar and it's very hard to have them far away or in like very like or in separate tiers of the draft. Well, I'm going to have to disagree with that because I have them very yes. far away. <laughs> yes, I know. That, that's why that's why I brought it up, too. Because tying me in knots already. This is not good. <laughs> so the I, I, I'm, I, I'm just going to phrase the argument as a comparison because that's kind of how I was, you know, I had it prepared in my notes earlier. I, the way that I look at it is I have Keontae George at 21. I have Nick Smith a touch higher than him. Nick Smith is better at a lot of the things that make him like capable of handling like on ball and lead guard responsibility for me. Like Keontae George has better numbers like almost across the board because he played 33 games. Nick Smith hurt his knee a little bit and only played 17 games in like separate blocks of the season. Um, I don't think Keontae George is a very good like ball screen operator or kick out passer. And I think he's not really a great playmaker just in general, unless it's a like a transition read or something that's kind of very open and easy, like a dump off to his bigs. Cause Baylor runs a very wide open spread out fast, like three point shooting oriented offense. And that can lead to a lot of easy lanes and angles to exploit and ways to hit the uh, big men that are rolling to the rim. Uh, the, I don't really like his ability to attack closeouts um, which is, again, I think is something that is going to be really, really important because if he's not like an elite shooter right away, he's going to be able or going to need to be able to get by defenders that are closing out on him, but not necessarily like flying right by him in an effort to make sure he gets ran off of the line. Uh, and they're, neither of them are particularly great athletes, which is why I think I ended up probably being a touch lower than consensus on both of them. Maybe not on Nick Smith. I feel like he's probably fallen out of favor more so than Keontae, but both of these players started the season inside the top 10 for a lot of people like mainstream and like draft Twitter people alike. So um, I, I Keontae also, I think relies on the tough shot making a lot. Uh, and right now he is just a little bit too small for that type of play style uh, while not being able to cat to supplement that with like, wide open catch and shoot efficiency or like really great finishing or playmaking or defense or anything like that. Like right. If that is your main skill and it's really the only thing that is you can use to separate yourself from the crowd in the NBA, 
you have to be like absolutely exceptional at it. And I just don't think that he's there yet. And I, I think he either, there are a couple pathways for him to be, to get there, or he could become more of a point guard, which again is the other thing that he's mm-hmm. like a combo right now that leans much more towards off ball guard than I, I would agree with that. Even as being someone who is higher on Keontae, right. I, I'm not coming in here saying, I, yo, I think he's a, I think he's a point guard and everyone's missing it. I, I agree with that. Right. And it, while, and if he doesn't have the athleticism to like get by defenders consistently uh, in the NBA, which I'm not sure that he does, like he doesn't have that like first step burst explosiveness that a lot of these like explosive micro scores have, it's going to be even tougher to rely on these like off balance, pull up threes and long twos with, a hand in your face guarded by a, a bigger player off of a switch. Uh, and, and like until he develops into more of a point guard and is able to leverage those situations where th- his on-ball defender is like completely focused on him and he can manipulate the defense and stuff like that. Um, and I think that that's where Nick Smith, I think, separates himself a little bit. And that's why I have him higher. Um, he is able to take advantage of those things a little more. I'm not sure what Keontae George does in the NBA right away okay. and i think that's important okay for players that are not being drafted in the top like you know lottery ish area you need to be able to do something like right now and i'm not sure what that is so we do disagree with that quite a lot i, I was going over my <laughs> scout scout notes here as you were talking and literally i have the opposite of what you've written down at certain bits so um Firstly, I think Keontae George is probably one of the best shooters in the draft. Um, I would say he is probably behind Jordan Hawkins. He's probably behind Grady Dick. Um, maybe behind Jet Howard. After that, I would have Keontae George maybe as the next best shooter, especially at his age. His percentages weren't great. He was 34% in the year, 79% from the free throw line. But that was 6.9 attempts. They were off the dribble attempts. They were tough attempts. A lot of them were really poor decision attempts if i'm being really honest but i mean some of the shots that he hit he hit these three he hit three of them I, just just from the film i watched of these like double clutch threes where there's someone like closing out on him and he's able to like swish these shots from 27 feet contested and that just shows like that extreme shot making to me just shows that it, it always looks soft it always looks balanced he's really good footwork and he's has like quite a sudden release so i think Straight away, what I think his elite skill will be is his shot making. I think he will be elusive. I think he'll be able to, to get to a shot. Taking the right shots is something that he needs to learn at because he called his own number way too many times this year at Baylor. And they let him know. They benched him. But I also had written down here that um, I, I really liked his burst. <laughs> so yeah, there was a couple of times he like split double teams and then just drove into the paint, kicked it out. And I wrote down like he almost had kind of Donovan Mitchell style burst. He was a guy probably of like a similar body type, right? With athleticism, um, speed, not the biggest guy, right? But and, and Donovan was a better vertical athlete than Keontae George. But I do think he has got a knack for like getting into the paint. He gets to the free throw line a lot. But there are some things there. That's, that's where we differ, I think. I, I like his burst. I like his handle, his burst with handle, ability to get into the paint beat those double teams. I like his shot making and just generally like, I actually really like his defense. He like takes steps in and takes charges. Like he's six, three, but he's not just like a six, three guard. I think you have to hide um, his own worst. Any enemy is himself. 
And I really believe that he can overcome that in the right system. Yeah, see, I the I don't think that he is like more than 25% the athlete that Donovan Mitchell is, is I think that's the big separator for me. I think he's fine. Like as a, like a, like a lateral athlete, he has like pretty good bend on drives and he does split double teams. Well, like he gets pretty low to the ground and can like get between players and he's not like skinny, I guess, but he's not, he's not necessarily strong either. So he is like, he's fairly elusive. Like you said, he has a pretty good gather. Um, like where he does like a hard dribble and that like jump over gather that he brings the ball over his head and over the defender's head. But the only problem is that he doesn't finish that well on the other side of that either. Um, and he also, he, like you said, he is not a vertical player at all and he's not strong. And I, he, he has very good finishing touch, but he's not, he just doesn't have the athleticism to create like open space for himself at the rim without like, it being some sort of crazy contortion layup and you can have great touch and finish those like often enough, but I don't think he's going to be like a high level finisher in the paint. Um, and I, 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 don't, I wouldn't have him in my top 10 best shooters in the draft either, which is, I think my other. Yeah. So we obviously disagree, disagree on that. I, I think, you know, but you look at someone like Gabe Vincent, right? He is not a great rim finisher. You look at someone like Duncan Robinson, not a great rim finisher, but he, they're so good at, sh at shooters that I think like you then don't have to be great at the rim because the teams are running so hard at you that you can just like collapse the defense, you kick it out and you make the pass. I saw enough of that, that I believe he could be like that level of impact to player. Um, and th there was, I I'm trying, I don't know what game it was. I was watching Keontae George had this vicious one handed Tomahawk jam, which like there is a lot of talk that he's lost a lot of weight during the pre-draft process. In fact, I'm looking at it now against Kansas. He basically went in transition and kind of like jumped up and spiked it, cocked it back. And, you know, he's lost more weight now. He looks a little bit bouncier. I do wonder if there, he's just more of a, a bit more of an underrated athlete. He played with these like double ankle injuries towards the end of the season as well. I, I do wonder if there is some sneaky more athleticism that he's not tapped into. One, because he wasn't in shape. And two, because he was playing a little bit injured. So, yeah, the... At least we can identify the areas we disagree with Keontae, right? And it can be a guy that we can track here. We see different things on film. We can circle back maybe this time next year and uh, have a look. All right. So why don't we put, flip it to the other side of the coin here? Guy, The guy that I'm higher on, Nick Smith, you Nick are Smith. much lower on. I have Nick Smith 17. Where do you have him and what is your uh, point of contention here? So I have Nick Smith currently... 33rd, which is outside the first round, which is probably quite unpopular. But I, I originally I was keeping him in the first round just to protect myself from like, oh, he was a top high school prospect and like we didn't see the best of him from injuries. And I like that he fought through his injuries this year. I like that he didn't just shut it down. He decided to play through, he tried to come back. And then I just realized I was honest with myself. And I said, I, the only reason I'm keeping him there is like for tangential reasons which I don't think are right and I went back and looked at the film and I just think he's one of those great high school scorers I'm sorry in the pros I just don't see it working anywhere near as well um I I don't think he's anywhere close to the three-point shooter that Keontae George will be I think he has got a like a very good mid-range floater and pull-up game I think that's exceptional he's like pick and roll he's slithery in the pick and roll 
but he doesn't create for others all that effectively. And he's always a bit like a Lou Williams type. And there's a lot of guys who say they want to be Lou Williams. And there weren't many. Like, you have to be great at drawing contact and everything like that. And and then the other thing is just, like, the defensive tape is just some of the worst of the whole draft. Um, he It's not his effort level. Like, he actually try He gets in stance and tries to guard the guy. He just is a completely awful rebounder, doesn't attack the ball, doesn't get back in transition. He doesn't play with, like, any, a real sense of urgency and just completely loses guys off the screens. I don't know who he guards uh, in Charlotte or anywhere, really. Shies away from contact, has really poor off-ball awareness. So when you talk about, like, I think he's going to be a a guy who, if you get into him physically, he's going to struggle to score efficiently. I think he's going to be mainly a two-point specialist scorer. I think he'll be a fine three-point shooter, but I don't think he'll be anything to write home about. His, his bread and butter, even in high school, is always that mid-range, that floater, like crafty. But I just think when you get to the NBA and you've got the length, the bigs that you're having to play over, and when you're a sieve defensively, I just, you know, he doesn't have the creation. He doesn't have the defense. I'm not sold that he's a great three-point shooter. He'll be he'll be perfectly fine. Those are my areas of concern for Nick Smith. And, like, he doesn't get to the free throw line like Keontae George does. I don't see him having the same burst. He plays, like, very slow style. That's, like, generally, like, you have to bend to how you play. And like, let's just face it, he got benched for Arkansas this year. In the tournament, they were like taking him out and playing any guy on the roster ahead of him. They could not trust him defensively. And he's just a guy that unless he is like making shots every other possession down the floor, I just don't see where the value comes from him. So I, I know I'm probably out on an island on this one, but I am definitely, I, I decided I have to be honest with myself. I just don't see the Nick Smith love. See, I definitely don't think that like what you said about him as a defender is necessarily wrong. I just think that the context that he played in this year with his injuries and like how spaced out like the two stints in which he played were, I just think they really affected his ability to like gather any sort of rhythm on on both ends of the court, which and that's something I think that physical rhythm or mental rhythm, like both, in terms like, of like okay. Like on because like Think about when you're at the beginning of the season in those non-conference games against worst teams. Like those are when young players can really like kind of like tool themselves up and get like momentum being like, I'm really guarding right now. Like I'm a part of the team defense, getting off ball steals, rotating, stripping guys, getting up, making plays in transition and stuff like that because you can both overwhelm the competition athletically and ideally schematically he didn't get to play in any of those games. Like he missed the first six games of their season. Uh, he played, a, I think, one, five non-conference games in late November and early December. And then he was out again until mid-February. So he missed a huge stretch of the season in the middle of the year. He played a couple of non-conference games and then kind of had to sit on the sidelines as the team was really starting to gel like in the winter and rolling into conference play. And then he got thrown back in in the middle of SEC play kind of had like a rough start, but he had three 20 point games or 20 or actually three games of 24 or more points in that stint to end the year. He had a, a four steal game. He had, I think he had seven steals in his last five or six games. Like, I, can I just say, I want to rule out the Kentucky game 
because I okay. watched every play of the Kentucky game and he scored like 10 points when there was like a minute left and like they everyone had stopped playing and it was like not a real basketball environment. Like Kentucky hey. had won. It was like nothing was going on and he just like threw up a couple of threes and hit them. So I'm, I'm removing the Kentucky game from your argument. Strict, strict it from the record, Your Honor. All right, fine. That, that's that's <laughs> fair enough. But either way, I think he played much better as the year went on. Like just in in terms, not necessarily from like a full game, like had multiple good games in a row and was just stacking up performances. But I think he was a much more conducive to winning, even though in the tournament it didn't necessarily work out that way. He was but benched. He, he, yeah, I mean, he was he was a freshman. That happens to freshmen maybe more often than people would think, not necessarily for somebody that would be picked in like the top five or 10 or something like that. But for a guy that missed as much time as he did this year, it was a team. It was an Arkansas team desperate for shooting chase. Like, Oh yeah. They had Anthony black, Jordan Walsh, uh, like, you know, they, they did not have shooters. They were a great defensive team. I, you thought that they would be desperate to get in the ball. They struggled for creation. They struggled for shooters and he couldn't get on the floor. And like, I just, like that is something that just does not sit right with me. Yeah, I mean, I I just think it's because he he had no rhythm like all year, and all of the I think if you watch like all of the flashes like and had no other like information on Keontae George or Nick Smith, like I don't think it would be even close. Like I think Nick Smith looks like the better player like at his peak by like a comfortable margin because God, I disagree with that. Like same, like you. He has that, like you you said it, he has that like slitheriness like as a ball handler and pick and roll player. I think he's a much better passer than he was given credit for. If he didn't have to play with like Anthony Black, like a non-shooting point guard, they wouldn't have needed Nick Smith to be that shooter. But, and this is an extremely small sample, th- sample size, but I actually think that this is something that's very encouraging long-term. Of the 24 threes that Nick Smith made this year, 22 of them were assisted. So I think, and going back to the point I made about Keontae George, where I don't know what he does on an NBA floor right away, I think right away what Nick Smith can do on an NBA floor is space the floor as a catch-and-shoot threat. Because if you watch like his catch-and-shoot possessions, he has like a very, very nice-looking catch-and-shoot jumper. Quick release, very on balance. Do you not? Like, do you not? But I, this is one of the things out of my notes. He has like a turn, like he faces the left as he shoots it a little bit and like kind of shoots it across his body. Yeah. That's, I, that's I think one thing I, just... I really noticed on, on like all of his spot attempts. He, his knees and his body is not aligned towards the basket. His energy is going like a 45 degree angle away from the basket. Now, the shot still looks good. Don't get me wrong. Like it, it's smooth. But when I look at like picture perfect mechanics, that lower body does not look like that. And I, it almost looks like he's fading away on every shot he makes because I think he's so used to getting in that like cat and mouse mid-range game and kind of having to like fade away because he's shooting over a, a six foot ten big and he's trying to make some space. But again, that's one that I don't find that shot like something that I look at that and go, yeah, he's going to be a, a primary floor spacer as role. That's just not what I see, which is fine. We see different things, but that's obviously why I've got him so much lower. I think, but I think on top of the primary floor spacing, though, I think he's going to be able to be like an empty side, like attacking closeouts guy. If he'd be able to take advantage of like a four on three situation, because he's a good passer, can run like empty side pick and roll or something like that, take advantage of a rolling big or hit like a spot up shooter. And his right hand floater, like you mentioned it when we were talking about Keontae, it is like impeccable. Like it would be one of the most like, 
Like it was probably one of the more unguardable shots of any prospect in this class. Like if he gets like a head of steam going to his right and can make like a hard jump stop and like throw that floater up over his shoulder, it's like not, like, it goes in like almost every time he gets like a real clean look at it. Cause it's, but let's be I frank, think, there aren't that many plays in the NBA where when they're taking a floater, the, the coach and the offense are going, I'm really happy with that shot. That's it, true. But for, guard, for guards that, that play his on. role, I, that's that. I think that's true, but th- I think that's more like I don't think that that's necessarily a a good thing. Like like I think taking floaters is fine if you know how to do it. Then it's like one of the most important weapons to have in your your bag as as a guard. And I think Nick Smith is going to have that. So if he can become any semblance of like an off ball spacer and then take advantage of his playmaking and his inside the arc like pull up a built finishing. I think he's going to be like a very high level combo guard and that, and I think he really is like a legitimate combo guard that can toggle between initiating and playing off ball at his peak, obviously. Okay. Let's settle a debate there on, on that one. Um, Let's move on to our next guy. Olivier Maxence Prosper. Uh, You have him 27th. I have him 39th. There is a 12 spot difference. Chase, I'm just going to tell you, you've got caught up. You've got caught up in the pre-draft buzz, draft combine. Oh, shut it down after one game. Look at Maxence Prosper. Oh, he's shooting the ball so well. He's high character. He's killing it in all his workouts. <laughs> Chase, for his career, he is he is a junior, all right, right now. So uh, I, know, I think he's a young junior at that. That's the good news. He's what, yeah. 20, yeah, 20 he years old, 20 years old, 6'8", 7'1". But... For his career at college, he's shooting 32% from three, 75% from the free throw line. And for a guy who apparently is known for defense, he has averaged 0.1 blocks per game for his for each year of his career in college. And he's a six for eight supposedly defensive stopper. So Chase, I'm just letting you know, you got caught up in the pre-draft tie <laughs> and it's okay. I'm here to talk you down. Hey, I have I have long been an Omax guy. So going back to like when the season was still going on, I think I had him in like the 40s or something like that. Um, but it it all just comes down to like the NBA is looking for players that fill all of the things that if Omax is to you know fill out his potential and become like a long term NBA player, he's going to do all of the things that like they want out of like role playing three slash fours. And this term what has about become, passing the ball. Do we want them to be able to pass you, the you, ball? You don't need your your eighth best player to be a good playmaker. I, I you look I, at the Miami Heat right now. They didn't play a guy who can't pass the ball on that team. I don't. I see. And Same I don't with think Denver as he, well. Everyone, both true. teams, full of guys who can make plays with the ball. That that that's. I think that that's probably <laughs> fair. I I don't think that you necessarily need to build your team to be like the Miami Heat necessarily. Like they they have captured voodoo dark magic that is literally inexplicable in any sort of statistical manner other than just being like still sore make... about your celtics no, they, still I, I ask milwaukee bucks fans how they feel about it too it's it's like it's literally like completely inexplicable how well that they have played in comparison to what they showed over the the regular season but either way uh i don't i don't think that he's like some sort of like non-passer either i think that he played with the second leading assist uh, per game player in Tyler Kolek in the entire nation and also played with one of the best passing bigs in the nation in Oso Iguodaro. So there was no need for him to do that. Uh, He was like strictly a play finisher in the half court. When he gets in the open court, 
he can handle it. He has, can pass it. He can shoot in from the corners, I think. And, and in any sort of like inside the arc, like layup, put back, you know, dunk, anything like that, he's going to be able to finish in an efficient manner. He has very long arms. He's a 7-2 wingspan, like you mentioned. Very strong. And I don't necessarily think that he is like a rim protector, which you, the not being able to block shots is, you know, not a great thing. I, that, but that's why I have him at 29 rather than somebody that would be in like the high 20s or something like that. Because if he could block shots, he would be like a very like a full tool, every defensive tool to switch like one through five. And I think right now he could very, very well be somebody that switches like one through four in the NBA, which is a very rare thing among like prospects to actually be able to project that. But I think that you can reasonably say he has the length, mobility, strength, and like instincts and awareness. And he definitely has the toughness and the motor to be somebody that can switch across many multiple positions in the NBA. And that is a very, very valuable thing. And I think that's worth investing in in the late first, even if it's like boom or bust type. Pre-draft, better prospect, JT Thor or Omax? Omax. Okay. Where did you yeah. have JT Thor ranked at the time, roughly? Um, you know? I can pull it up in one second. I believe it was like the mid-30s, 32. So only three spots lower than where I have Omax, but... I mean, so, I, I would, what, yeah, so I would say because for me, JT Thor showed, uh, I'd say, as much ability as a switch defender and probably a versatile defender, a better shot blocker. I would say he had a maybe not a, probably a similar track record. Like in his freshman year, which JT Thor was a freshman and drafted, like I think JT shot like twenty seven percent from three. Like Omax was at sixteen percent as a freshman. Like what makes what makes you have Omax so far ahead of JT as a prospect? Because I like. I look at them and I have JT Thor light years ahead of where, I mean, I have JT Thor as a first rounder, uh, but I have them light years ahead of where I'd have Omax. I think Omax, his scalability to the role that he's going to have in the NBA, I think makes much more sense. And he's not going to have to develop that type of mindset in any way. Um, I, he's not going to have to be like a pull. He does like JT Thor's scoring and like the off the dribble stuff was a huge selling point for him as a prospect he hasn't, we haven't seen any of that and he hasn't gotten to be able to even show us any of that because that's not the type of role he plays. Omax, I think is instantly going to come into the NBA and just be like, yep, I'm all right. Like going out here and just being like one of those, like muck it up, like Grant Williams, PJ Tucker, Jeff Green type guys that just does a bunch of stuff with their arms out at their sides and is always jumping and diving on the floor and doing all the like little things that Jared not, Vanderbilt, not everyone, name, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's another, I honestly, I think he'll be not necessarily the level of defender, but I think he'll be pretty similar in the way that they play while being able to shoot from the corners and maybe be like some sort of like pick and pop threat in the long term. I do the, the scalability of role, I think is something that I've tried to factor in a lot more in my ranking, like JT Thor. I mean, maybe going back, I probably would even have him a little higher if I just watched and obviously knowing what I know now, like having watched all of his, or not all, but the high majority of his professional minutes. But I just think that what Omax is going to do, in, or what Omax did in college and what he's going to do in the NBA are very similar enough. And he's, I think he's just going to have to do it at like a higher level and just with, against higher level players in the NBA. And all, by all intents and purposes, he seems like the type of guy that is going to be able to handle that. 
So the one thing I will say is the feedback he has got in terms of like character has been probably like him and Scoot Henderson have been the two names for like best character guys in the draft. So that I will say counts for something. And I've only heard that like recently, but that is the feedback I'm getting. Um, you say like his role in college will be similar to like in the NBA. For me, there's just too many like red, there's just too many like statistical red flags here. I just can't ignore him. Like, I mean, for his first two years, I mean, he's a like a big, he he shot four, 34% in his first year, 46% from the field. He, like, he is not good finishing around the rim. He desperately relies on getting fouled and he got fouled a lot this year because everyone fell for his stupid pump fake every time he drove to the rim which he was never wanting to go up ever and people just kept jumping at him and he kept initiating the contact i don't think that's flying in the nba um 31 career from three not great 75 from the free throw line is is fine um here's a two to one turnover to assist ratio which i talked about some of the passing concerns earlier and I just don't think for a guy who's going to hang his hat on being the switchable defensive Swiss Army knife, like one stock game for his like career, steal. But I, I, there's just too many things there where like I'm. If the shooting is real, if the assist to turnover improves, if he can come a better rim protector, uh, if he can keep getting fouled at the same rate, there's just too many ifs. And I just reached too many that like I'm. I just don't understand how he's getting this first round bust now. I mean, for the year, people were talking about Tyler Kolek and Osara Igadaro much more than Omax. Well, maybe you weren't. You might have been onto this earlier. But in the draft community, he, he'd come on very, very late. Um, so, the, yeah, just too many ifs for me. I, I think, like, yeah, there's value there. And he went from being unranked in my top 60 to now being 39th on my board. And that's like a really good big jump for someone to move up basically 21 spots. Um, from before the draft combine. So I, I don't want to make it out like I, I hate the guy. I just think there's like a lot of projecty stuff. I don't see the instant impact stuff, which is why I have like that second round grade on him. Borderline, like he's the last guy that I'd probably like give a guaranteed contract to after that. I'm probably looking at, looking at two-way guys. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Just it's hard for me to pass up on the that type of archetype with he has, he does, he, you're right about the statistical shortcomings, but um, he does hit some, some checks and boxes in some areas, 38 dunks, 68.8% at the rim. He made 39 threes this year. He's a very, very high level athlete. Good character. I don't know. I, it's, it, I'm an Omax guy. I, I, I think that's my, my what can my I say? Away just, from this. <laughs> uh, I love Omax. I love Omax. <laughs> um, Okay, our last one here for Big Board Wars. The biggest difference on our entire draft board. 18 spots separate this player. I have him 23rd. You have him 41st, which is the lowest I've seen this player anywhere in the world. Why do you hate Chris Murray? Tell the world. Yes, I, I, I mean, after last year, like I, I, it seems like I, I just have some sort of vendetta against the Murray family because I think I had Keegan like 11 or something like that. You really do have a, I mean, I have um, Keegan probably like in a similar range. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, so clearly I just have something against them, which I obviously do not. Um, but yeah, I like, and I, again, this is, I, I just brought it up a couple minutes ago, but it's the scalability thing. I don't think his role player abilities are as like scalable to the NBA as most do. 
he's like not a great shooter and he might he's like barely even like a good shooter in terms of his overall like numbers he's 33 and a half percent and that was off of 91 percent of the makes being assisted so it's not like he's creating these looks himself or taking like overly tough shots like and if he is taking overly tough shots it's because that that would be like a poor decision to make and that's a, i think a huge area where he differs from his brother and not to make the brother comparison but i think that's something that obviously everybody is going to do consciously or subconsciously he does not have that like feel for the game that's going to translate i think from the role that he played at iowa um the, the looks that he has now I think are only going to get tougher in the NBA, given that he's also not like a very athletic to, or not athletic enough, I should say, to be a wing and is more of like a stretch four. Uh, and is honestly like one of the rare players that fits like the power forward mold um, in modern basketball. And, and then that renders like his length, like less effective being being a four because being, you know, six, eight, six, nine, that doesn't really matter as much when you're, the second biggest player on the floor, as opposed to like a wing that can handle the ball and stuff. Uh, and I don't think he can handle the ball because he's not a great playmaker. He's a fine ball handler for his size, but not somebody that's like breaking down defenders and getting by them. He's more of like a, like a footwork face up scorer that can shoot over you or like get around you with some sort of crafty move. Um, and I don't think that that's, that's going to work as much in the NBA uh, though. I will admit, I actually think he's going to be like a pretty good team defender that would get like a number of, steals and blocks and rotation like if he, his I, nba p- career pans out and i'm wrong about all the stuff that i said i think he would be a good team defender and that's not something that i like knock him for right now but i just think the age uh lack of athleticism and lack of like on ball creativity uh outside of just like tough shot making uh at his size are really tough to put in the first round and like wh- when it's somebody that would have to you know, up his statistical output pretty, pretty significantly to be somebody that is like, you know, put him on the NBA court right now. Like, you know, and at that age, like that's kind of a tough ask with a guaranteed contract. So you've put forward a lot of reasons there. I know the real reason you don't like Chris Murray. Okay. And it's because he's the anti Max Prosper. He is the most boring draft candidate there is. There is not anyone (laughs) talking about Chris Murray. He's, <laughs> that's he's, that's true actually he's, he's old we know exactly what he's gonna do he's low maintenance he's like not flashy in anything he does at all he's just like there's nothing exciting about watching chris murray and i get it i find it boring as anything but and, and he's like but he's like super productive like 20 20 points eight rebounds two assists over a block a game a steal a game um, I, I don't see the world personally, but this is why the draft is great because we can disagree. How you can have like that level of production ahead of, sorry, behind someone like that. And, and I know what you're going to say as well. He's he's a lot he's a lot older. He's like two years older. It's it's not huge. It's like 18, 20 years old. Some of these freshmen, it, they it's not like with the three or four year difference here. That's the real reason you don't like Chris Murray because he's just a boring guy, and I get it. It's okay. I mean, I I can't dispute it. You make a you make a very compelling case, but yeah, I mean, I I think it. I, it a lot of it is just kind of maybe like my draft philosophy. Like with that late like first round area, like I'm just not. I think I'm much more of like a take a swing for the fences, like in whatever way that that might be, like 
you know, some young player that has a lot more upside or like maybe an older guy that has more to tap into. I don't, I just, he just doesn't fall into either of those categories and he is productive, like no doubt about it. Like he was one of the better players in the big 10, which is one of the best conferences in all of college basketball. But I, I don't know. He's just not, he's just not as efficient as I, as you want to see, I think. And doesn't have I, I, his I like... think you're from a three point land. I actually do agree with you. Like I, the shot looks really pretty, but you do dive into the numbers and it's not great. But I also think like the sh- his shot was the first thing on the scout report for basically like the Hawkeyes. So you know, guys are keying in on him. I will say he does a bunch of stuff which is kind of like like you don't notice it as much because but but he does it really well. So like on post ups, he's excellent. Uh, he's in the 91st percentile for scoring out of post-ups and he's really good at getting duck-ins when he gets like a switch and gets a mismatch onto him he'll take him down to the post get a duck-in or he'll cut and kind of go into like a semi-post-up cut and score that way again it's not exciting but it just worked he's excellent 92nd percentile on offensive rebound putbacks so he like rebounds the ball to a good level again nothing flashy about like offensive rebound and putting it in but those like just the way he works I actually think he's a really Pretty well-rounded play, like get out, get out and transition a good bit as well. Seventeen percent of his points in transition ran well, so I just think he does these like little things: rebounds well, runs in transition, scores on post-ups. These things that they aren't, you know, double dribble, step back threes. Uh, you know, they're not flashy, but they're the kind of things that I think coaches will like because he just makes the simple plays, makes the right plays, does the little things, and I think I, I mean. Also, by the way, can we stop doing the Sacramento mock draft for Chris Murray? Like, we get <laughs> that his brother plays there. We we understand this. We don't have to put him at every single mock draft. I swear, it's where every single one I see. Like, I'm sure the Kings have got other. Like, it's not like your draft that you've got Yanis and Tetacumpo. You need to keep him happy. Keegan, Keegan Murray <laughs> is not Yanis. Um, let's just. You know, it's not Lamelo Ball and Jello. Let's just uh, take it back a, a, a step. Is there anybody else who has a brother in this draft class other than him? I'm looking it, what, right in, now. In the NBA right now or just like potential yeah. draft prospect? Yeah, that would be in the NBA. I'm looking I'm looking through my big board. I can't I can't not a single name is jumping out at me. So yeah. I mean that could serve as a huge benefit in Keegan's favor or uh, Chris uh, I suppose Keegan's as well, but Chris's favor cuz He's the only one with with familial connections in the in the NBA right now. Jet that's, Howard that's had a dad class. at one point. Does that count? Yeah, I, that counts. I that that counts for the Heat because the Heat like his dad. So we'll say we'll yeah. go we'll go with that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, o- overall, I do agree with you. Like, I don't find watching Chris Murray exciting, but I just think he's like so solid at enough things that you you just know he's going to be a rotation player in the NBA. And like for a lot of teams, like we said, who need players who can imp- like impact straight away, we listed some of those teams earlier, the, the Lakers, Miami, Golden State, who might be looking for that impact player now. I think Chris Murray is someone you could foreseeably plug into a player rotation next year and he can make an impact. And I think that's why he'll go in the, in the first round. All right, that is it for Big Board Wars. Um, I, I don't feel like either of us have really persuaded either of us to reevaluate. I don't any think of our so. Picks. I don't. I we, think we, I think we were just talking to a wall. We, yeah, we were yes. both just like it was two brick walls, just having like an hour plus long conversation. But that's it's okay. Late in the draft that, cycle. That's how draft d- discussion exactly. That's it's how late, draft discussion like, goes a lot of the time. If if we have this discussion in 
April, May, we're probably more open-minded, but by this point in the draft, we've, we've made a lot of the film, we've done our rankings, we've we've made our decisions. Um, but I think for, for people out there who might be interested in some of these prospects, I think it will be a, you know, you can see both sides of the argument, right? And you can decide for yourself which one you uh, you think is, is most appropriately or most accurate. All right, well, let's get out of here. It's been a, just over an hour here. Um, we'll be back next week. Um, we have a upcoming podcast with Raphael Barlow, which we're recording next week, which is very exciting from NBA Draft Big Board. We also have a, another podcast in the work, potentially with some of the crew from No Ceilings. So we've got some, some guests upcoming soon and... Hopefully by the next time we speak, Chase, we might have had a, a Brandon Miller or a Scoot Henderson workout. Let's hope. I'm wait. I've been waiting for that that workout to drop. Like they've had, I think, three in a row, three days of workouts in a row. I'm just patiently waiting for one of them to just say one, just one name only, just Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller or yeah. anybody because they I haven't think- worked out anybody in the top in the 20? lottery yet. So yeah, they've not worked out anyone. I no, think no. Marcus Sasser is like the highest profile player they've worked out so far. So. Well, they had a max yesterday. I know you will have been excited yeah. about that. He's True. probably, I'd probably say his stock seems to be even higher than Marcus yeah. Sasser right now. Um, so Andy they had Jones, Julian too. Phillips come in today. Um, I'm not fa- really a fan of the guy, but um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, right. Let's, let's right. Fi- leave it there. Let's finish it there. All right. Thanks everybody. See you later. See you soon.